And uh, we're going to see some great things in the text of Scripture. So we're going to have a brief prayer, and we're going to go right to the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book of Moses. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, great day today. It's a beautiful, sunshiny day. And it is a day to be thankful. It is a day to be glad. It is a day to rejoice. And Father, you have given me a lot on my plate this week to rejoice about. But Father, the truth of the matter is, is that you have given us all something to rejoice about every week, every day of our lives. Because Father, this life is a grand, beautiful, frustrating, sometimes dark, mysterious thing. But Father, it is a gift. And today we have so much to be thankful for, even in the pain, even in the sorrow, even in the struggle. And Father, as we're going to learn today, even in the death, we have something to be thankful for. And so Father, today the prayer of my heart, the pastoral prayer of my heart is that you would illumine our minds. Give us today a fresh perspective, new eyes to see the text of Scripture and to come away with a better understanding not just of who you are, but of who we are. And Father, we're looking forward to a great message, and not because of the delivery, but because of the message, the content. Bless us now, we ask in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right, Nathan, I'm trusting you that we're ready to go back there. All right, what book did we open up to? Book of Deuteronomy. Last week, we spent our time in the book of Numbers. What we call the book of Numbers, what the Jews call in the wilderness, or sometimes just the wilderness, the Jews refer to this book as the words. The words. Because, for the most part, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of Moses in Torah, it's very likely that Moses also wrote wrote the book of Job, but at least as far as the Torah goes, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, this is the fifth and final book. And... The phrase, the words, comes up again and again. The words which were spoken. The words, the words, the words, the words. And for the most part, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of farewell messages from an aged Moses, 120 years old at this time, and he is delivering his homily. He is delivering a history of Israel in their wanderings because, for the most part, Those to whom he is speaking were very young, 20 and younger, when Israel came out of Egypt, when they stood at the base of Sinai, when God thundered in lightning and flame from Sinai's summit. Many of these kids would have been 1, 2, 3, 5, 10, 12 years old. And so Moses feels a paternal and patriarchal responsibility to deliver a series of farewell messages, basically to remind them of the amazing things that some of them saw and would have remembered, but certainly the things that their parents saw. And so what we discover in the book of Deuteronomy is not so much a book of stories as it is a book of sermons or a book of homilies in which Moses is bringing before the people, the children of Israel, the culmination of their wilderness wanderings and the sort of high point, which is also simultaneously the low point, which is also simultaneously the high point again of the book of Deuteronomy is the death of Moses. And we'll talk about why it's the high and the low and the high point in just a bit. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And here in verse 8, we find a verse... In fact, I think I've got this one on the screen. Let me just turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Here we find in verse 8, in the wilderness part 2... Here we find a verse that really helps to tie together several of the elements that we've been learning in our Blazing Grace series. Beginning, family, exodus, we've moved now into the land. And we've actually had a slight shift in our uh, sermon schedule. I'll be preaching again next Sabbath as well. Jared and I had to make a small shift. And next Sabbath is going to be a very, very difficult sermon, a sermon that I've already begun preparations for. In fact, I've been preparing to preach this sermon for probably 10 years And we're going to talk about what is arguably the most thorny, the most problematic, the most difficult part of Scripture. And that is the extirpation of or the dispossession of the Canaanite peoples uh, on behalf of Israel. That God said, go in there, don't spare man, don't spare woman, don't spare child. Drive them from the land. And a lot of people, myself included, we read those stories of the conquest of Canaan and we say, what's going on? How is this a God of love? How is this a God of mercy? How is this a God of forgiveness? And we're going to tackle that next week, the conquest of Canaan. 
But before we can get right into that, we've got to bring the Torah to a close. And of course, the Torah never really comes to a close because it informs all of Holy Scripture, right? Everything that follows from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, everything that follows is standing on the shoulders of these five books, the books of Moses. And here in the beginning of Deuteronomy, we find this passage that ties together, together several of the elements that we've been discussing in our series here, Blazing Grace. Moses says, See, this is God speaking through Moses, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Now, for those of you that have been on this journey with us from the very beginning, you will recall going all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God originally appeared to Abraham, he said that essentially he was going to give him two things. The covenantal promise revolved around two things. I will give you land and descendants to fill it. Land and descendants. In fact, that covenantal promise was identical, or I should say very similar to the promise that God had made to Adam. God gave Adam the garden and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill it. Very similar to what God said to Noah. Noah, after he came out of the ark, after the world had been destroyed by a flood, the first words that God speaks to Noah is, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the land, fill it with descendants. Here's the land, fill it with descendants. And so that Abrahamic promise was just the third in a line of similar promises that God had made to Adam, that he had also made to Noah. But the Abrahamic promise was unique and it was different because it became the archetypal covenant promise. It became the promise upon which all biblical promises afterward, including the promise of Messiah, the coming of Jesus, would, would rest. And so here when Moses is sort of standing, uh, this is actually right, he's remembering at the initial opportunity for Israel to go into Canaan, but, but it encapsulates the essence here of what Moses is saying. This land that you're getting is a direct fulfillment, Moses says, to the promise that God made to your fathers, to Abraham, with whom he made a covenant, and to his son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've already noted the marvelous and massive condescension that it was for God, the illimitable, eternal, omnipotent, spiritual God of the universe, to be identified by his association with human beings. What a remarkable condescension. Hey, which God is that? Which God are we talking about? Oh, this is the God of Abraham. This is the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God's identification with human beings is remarkable. And the reason is, is that God saw something in Abraham, something in Isaac, and something in Jacob, something in their family that he could, he could work with. They were malleable. They were pliable. He could say, these will be my people and I will be their God. Well, we move now several hundred years into the future, and Moses is 120 years old. Moses is at the very end of his life. The first generation that had come out of Egypt have all died, every one of them, including Aaron and Miriam at this point, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Moses is soon to die. So of that initial generation, the older generation that came out of Egypt, only two of the adult population are going to go into the land of Canaan. Only two. I remind you that this journey should have taken no more than two months. It's a two-month journey. Look at it geographically on a map, A to B. It's a short journey. But here they are, 40 years later, Abraham, or excuse me, Moses is not going in, Miriam is not going in, Aaron is not going in, only Joshua and Caleb. And Moses reminds them, this land and all of these descendants are a fulfillment of the promise that God originally made to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, I had the privilege this week of just reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and it's, it's a very dense book. It requires a lot of thought, but if you've, if you've done the hard yards of working through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, much of what we see in Deuteronomy is a revisitation or a recapitulation of things that have already happened. There's not a lot of new material in Deuteronomy because as we've mentioned, this is Moses revisiting, restating for the younger generation, the next generation, the great journeys and the great truths that God had committed to the children of Israel. And so as I read through the sort of 35 or 36 chapters of Deuteronomy, I came up with what, what I surmised as I was taking notes were sort of the major themes. And what I want to do is just spend a little bit of time on the first four of these themes, and then I want to spend most of our time 
time, the lion's share of our time, on the last theme there, which is the blessings and cursings motif. But let's start with the first one. The first one, as we've already mentioned, is that the book of Deuteronomy is, is largely a recapitulation of Israel's history and of the law that had been given to them. Now, just a word about that. The word Deuteronomy is actually kind of an interesting word. It literally means second law, right? From nomos and du, which is two, the second law. But it's not really a second law as such. It's more the revisitation or the restatement of the law for the next generation. This generation was eager, man. They had, they had a lot of miles or kilometers in their shoes. They had a lot of kilometers in their legs. They had a lot of kilometers in their bodies. And they were tired of walking. They were tired of wandering. They were tired of dwelling in tents. They wanted to go take possession of a land, a land that they had been told due to no merit of their own or no accomplishment of their own or no, no deserving of their own had been given to them, had been gifted to them by God. And we're going to talk about that next week. How can God just give these people somebody else's land? And not just give it, but then have the temerity to say, wipe them out completely. And again, that's a big sermon, big giant sermon. And I'm looking forward to it, but I am a little afraid of um, just the largeness of the topic. So Moses sort of revisits this, revisits the history, revisits the law, and reminds them of where their parents had gone wrong, and reminds them that if they made the same mistakes that their parents had made, that they would suffer a similar fate. Another major theme is this heart experience covenant with God. And I'm just going to share with you a few of these. There are so many passages in Deuteronomy in which God is saying, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your heart. I want you to love me. I want you to love me. I want you to love me. We come to the New Testament and we are trained almost by our, uh, by our lack of critical biblical evaluative thinking to see a discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. We read the Old Testament, we say, oh, that's a certain kind of God acting in a certain kind of way with a certain kind of people. And then we come to the New Testament, and rather than seeing continuity and consistency, we tend to see discontinuity. Different kind of God acting in a different kind of way with a different kind of people. The mean old God, the nice God, the Father, the Son, works grace, right? And there are whole denominations that have actually systematized this discontinuity into what's called dispensationalism. That there's one way that God works with people and then there's another way that God works with people. When in fact this whole idea of a demarcation between the Old and the New Testaments is largely artificial. If we will read the Old Testament as the Old Testament is designed to be read and if we will read the New Testament as it's designed to be read and particularly if we will do what the New Testament writers did and that is read the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament writers and the revelation of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, we will see not discontinuity, but continuity. And one of the things that we find in the New Testament is Jesus was asked on several occasions, what's the great commandment in the law? The Jews believed that there were some 613 commands, both major and minor, in Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They sort of distilled it all down to 613 commands, right? And so there was often in Jesus' day a lot of rabbinical debate about which was the most important of those commands. Which were negotiable and which were non-negotiable. Which were principal and which were preferential. And Jesus would be asked this. They, they would try in Jesus' day to tease him into these rabbinical debates. What do you say about paying taxes? What do you say about this woman who's had a number of husbands? Whose will she be in the resurrection? Always trying to tease Jesus into these philosophical, rabbinical debates that were very common in 1st and 2nd and 3rd century Judaism. On one occasion, Jesus was asked the question that was on the minds of many 1st century Jews, what's the great commandment? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus answered and said, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God, I wonder if you know this, with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here's the remarkable thing. Jesus did not invent some new thing. This language, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and the second, to love your neighbor as yourself, is straight out of the Old Testament. And the first part of that is straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. Let's look at several of these passages. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
For many, of other, for many of us in this room, one of our favorite passages in Scripture is probably Jeremiah chapter 29. For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and, and to give you a hope and a future. Right? One of the great passages. And then it jumps down to verse 13 and it says this very thing. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. But that's not a Jeremiah passage. Yes, it's in Jeremiah, but that is a restatement of Moses. You will seek me, Israel, and you will find me, not when you are perfectly, robotically obedient to all of these strictures and commands, but when I have your heart, you will find me. 529. The next one, there's there's literally dozens of these. We're just going to look at about four or five of them. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Ah, this sounds just like Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, what did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Not discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament, but continuity. Not inconsistency, but consistency. That's one of the reasons that we called this series purposefully a blazing grace. Another look at the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches the amazing grace of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Old Testament teaches the amazing and a blazing grace of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in symbol and in metaphor and in story. Continuity. Consistency. Same story. Look at this one. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command for you uh, for your good. That sounds very much like Micah chapter 6 verse 8, which is another passage that many of us know and love. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Straight out of the writings of Moses. Straight out of Moses. This is why in Jewish thinking and, and to some degree even in Christian thinking... The whole Bible, everything after Torah is resting and standing on the shoulders of the writings of Moses. The simple way to say that is that the Bible makes no sense without Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when Moses would have stood before the the next generation of the children of Israel who were just preparing to go into the land, one of the major features of his emphasis was, you've got to love God. You've got to love God. You've got to love God. Give Him your heart. Give Him your heart that it may go well with you and that it may go well with your children forever. It wasn't just about loving God. There was also this love your neighbor as yourself. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, God said, Is there among you a poor man of your brethren? Within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. So these two great principles that Jesus articulated in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself, firmly, safely ensconced in the writings of Moses, and particularly in this case, the book of Deuteronomy. I think we've got just one more, maybe two. Deuteronomy 26, 16. This is the, this day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. It's always about the heart and about love. Can the church say amen? That's not a New Testament idea. That's not some New Testament, flowery, cutesy, grace-filled, merciful, magnanimous idea that is somehow non-existent or invisible in the Old Testament. You go right back to Moses, and Moses is saying, you've got to love God, and you've got to love your brother and sister. You've got to give God your heart. It always has been, and it always will be about love. God having the heart, which leads us into the next one. A heart experience in the covenant with God, number three, is warnings of rebellion and idolatry. Another phrase that occurs regularly, or a word that occurs regularly in the book of Deuteronomy is the Hebrew word for neck, the neck. And the way that that's often translated in the English Bibles is either stiff-necked or stubborn. You are a stiff-necked people. You are a stubborn people, God repeatedly says. Here's just one instance of that, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 13. Furthermore, the Lord Lord spoke to me saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. 
They're a stubborn people. But here's the remarkable thing. That stiff-neckedness, that rebellion, that obstinacy, that stubbornness was not a product of the neck. It's not like they needed a massage. They didn't need to go to the physical therapist. God's like, man, you've got major neck problems. God's concern was not the neck. The neck was a product of the heart. Look at this here. You cannot have a soft heart and a stiff neck. If you get nothing else from the sermon, and you'd miss a lot if that's all you got, but if you got nothing else, remember that simple line. If your heart is soft, your neck can't be stiff. This is one of the things I'm saying to my, to my boys. Boys, if you soften your heart toward one another and toward others, your, your neck will change. But if you harden your heart toward people, then your neck will be stiff. And at the end of the day, beloved, your problem and my problem is not our neck. It's not our stubbornness. It's not our hands. It's not our actions. It's our heart. It's the way we think. It's the way we believe. It's the way that we relate to those around us. And that's why my advice to you and my advice to myself is work on the heart, not the neck. You can't change your neck. According to Scripture, your neck is naturally stiff-necked. It's naturally rebellious. It's naturally stubborn. And of course, the idea here is of a neck that just won't bend. It's resistant, it's obstinate, it's stiff, it will not move. It's not pliable, it's not supple. And God says, you're a stiff-necked people. You're a stubborn people. But God doesn't then say to us, go change your neck. He says, give me your heart. Give me your love. Give me your affections because the only way our neck will ever change, the only way our stubbornness and our our unkindness and our meanness will ever change is if we give God our heart. Can the church say amen? This sounds very New Testament. This sounds very much like Jesus. No wonder Jesus would repeatedly say in the New Testament, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Jesus didn't see discontinuity. He saw continuity. And then, of course, an emphasis on the education of the youth. And I want to spend just a moment on this. Turn with me in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Join me there. Deuteronomy in the fourth chapter. And we find here one of several places in which God specifically cites the importance of the education of the youth. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Now this is God speaking, but in your mind's eye, imagine an aged Moses standing there addressing the people of Israel in what would have been some sort of a natural, rocky amphitheater, and he speaks to them about their own children, the grandchildren of the initial generation that had come out of Egypt. Verse 9, take heed to yourself. I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. And diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, that's Sinai, when the Lord said to me, gather to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. So thankful to uh, Laurel Kingsbury. She came up to me after last sermon Sabbath Is Laurel here somewhere? Where are you at, Laurel? Hiding? Came up. Do you remember what you said to me after last Sabbath? What did you say? She said, you should have included the grandparents. And shame on me, I should have. Because I talked about the importance of parents setting a good example and parents having parameters and boundaries in their home and children not just needing parental discipline but self-discipline. But, but Laurel was exactly right, and she's totally in harmony with Moses, with what Moses says here. The raising of a child is not just the responsibility of the parents. It is primarily the responsibility of the parents. But he says, also the grandparents. The grandparents have a role to play, an important role. And especially in this case, those that were a little older, they would have been able to tell their children's parents and perhaps even their great-grandchildren what they had seen maybe when they were 10 or 11 or 12 standing below Sinai's amazing summit with the thunder and the lightning and the voice that they would have heard the voice that was so loud so sonorous and thunderous that they actually said to Moses Moses tell God to turn off the megaphone because if he keeps speaking like that we're gonna die and Moses says tell your children rehearse for them these stories rehearse for them the way that they have been led and tell your grandchildren And if you should live long enough, tell your great-grandchildren. Go to Deuteronomy 6. Stay right here, Deuteronomy 6. Same book, just two chapters later. 
verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 is arguably the single most important verse in the whole Torah from a Jewish perspective. In all of Genesis, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, all of Deuteronomy, all of Leviticus, it is, it is arguable that Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 is the most important verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or as some translations render it, the Lord our God alone is God. There is no other God. No idols. In fact, just a word on that. One of the things that they were specifically instructed to teach their children was the dangers of idolatry. In fact, when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, we're not going to spend any time there this morning. We'll probably talk a little bit about it next week. When you go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, God says a very unusual thing, and it's a thing that's frankly very politically incorrect and and seemingly hugely culturally insensitive. God says, Israel, when you come into this new land, when you come into the Canaan land, and I displace these five nations from before you, when you come upon one of their places of worship, if you find what he calls a sacred pillar or a shrine in the high places, he says, destroy it. Utterly destroy it. I want every evidence of their uh, religious culture and of their religious practices and of their religious cult, I want it erased, eviscerated from the earth. And he actually tells us why in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and this will be familiar to us in this congregation. He says, because they, they put their children into the fire. One of the ways in which these Canaanite peoples, and we're going to talk more about this next week, one of the ways that these Canaanite peoples worshipped their various gods and deities was by burning their own children. A thing that we've mentioned here before, God says, that never even came into my mind. I am so disgusted, I am so repulsed by the idea that somebody would think that I would be a bloodthirsty God or that any God that would require such a thing isn't a God but is a demon or a figment of somebody's imagination. So God says, when you come into Canaan and you find those shrines, don't preserve them as heritage sites. Don't preserve them as... And he says, don't pay any attention. Don't try to figure out how they worshipped. He said, you come upon one of them, eviscerate it destroy it. Teach your children. He was deeply concerned that the sort of cultural and historical and social awareness that the children might have, that it might slowly but surely bleed into their own experience and their own expression of how to worship God. And sure enough, that actually does end up happening. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 again. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God alone is God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We've already talked about that. Verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this was actually eventually taken literally by the Jews, but God is not saying, as, as the Jews in Jesus' day and to some degree today, as they do, which is to take literal copies of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, or little, literal copies of sections of Torah and write it on small bits of paper and then put it on a, a phylactery that's placed either on the hand or on the head. God wasn't saying, hey, look, Get a tattoo on your hand. Get a tattoo on your head. What God was saying is, in your actions, teach your children. In the way that you think, in the way that you relate, in the way that you feel, in the way that you speak, teach your children and your children's children. He says, write it on the doorposts. When somebody comes into your house, there should be some, some scent, some aroma, some essence that communicates, hey, this house is a little different. Not just by the things that are there, but by the things that aren't there. He says, teach your children. And he says, when you're sitting, teach your children. When you're walking, teach your children. When you're standing, teach your children. When you wake up in the morning, teach your children. When you, when you go to sleep at night, teach your children. And I suppose the lesson for us here today is we need to make time to educate our children because the culture, the world that we live in today, 2015 Australia, is not going to take the time to educate your children about the one true God and how they should live and the requirements that He has on their life. Can you say amen to that? Well, who's going to teach them then? 
If it's not happening in the home, it's not happening. And praise God for TVAC. But if you're hoping that TVAC will do something or Gold Coast Christian Academy will do something that you're not doing in your home, that ship has sailed. That ship has sailed, men. Ladies, that ship has sailed. You think, oh, it's a Christian church. They ought to be having worship. You're a Christian home. Are you having worship? This is a Christian school. They ought to be teaching Scripture. This is a Christian home. Are you teaching Scripture? Now, some of you might be nervous about that. You might be like, oh, man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can't sit on that chair, can I? <laughs> you might be thinking, I'm, I, you know, I don't know what David Asherick knows. I don't, no, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be. Open the Bible to the Gospel of John and read a chapter. Right? Just pray for the Holy Spirit and read a chapter. I am pleading with you, and I'm looking particularly, particularly to the men here, but also the ladies. If the men won't step up, ladies, you can step up. I am pleading with you to take the religious education of your children seriously. Because TBAC, for all the good work they do, and Gold Coast Christian College, for all the good work they do, and maybe your children go to Hillcrest or some other school, those are all fine schools. But at the end of the day, your, it's your responsibility, the religious education of your children. The salvation of your children, the conversion of your children. Thank you so much for that. At the end of the day, that is your responsibility. Can the church say Amen. Right? And part of that, and I, I just want to make it very practical here, part of that, and it doesn't have to be a 30-minute sermon where you put on the suit and the tie and pretend like you're the preacher. Having prayer with your children in the morning, gathering them together, holding your hands as a family, and praying and saying, God, be with us today. Give us a good day. Give us a productive day. Are there any prayer requests? What are they? Let's pray. We have two simple devotional books, one that we read in the morning, one that we read in the evening. And our worship sometimes are as short as two minutes and sometimes as long as 15, but never more than 15 minutes. That, it's, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to, with continuity and with consistency, have a worship that's longer than 15 minutes with teenage children. But get your kids together, men. Even if they're so young, they don't understand what you're saying and just have a simple prayer. Even if they're 16, 17 and you've never done it, you can start it. It's still your home. When I was 18 years old and I lived in my own house, my dad charged me rent. And my advice to you is if you have adult teenage children that are living in your home, it is still your home. And you can have simple rules, reasonable. You don't need to force anything on them. But you can say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm pleading with you, pleading with you. If you want to get some simple devotional book, if you want some... Uh, some hints. My wife and I can help you as to what we do. You can talk to other elders in the church. I'm pleading with you to take the religious education of your children seriously. And if you're sitting here and you don't have any kids, still have worship. Or if your children have already left the home, just in the morning, it's so simple. You grab your wife's hand, you grab your, your husband's hand, and you just have a simple prayer. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes. Start your family's day with God and end your family's day with God. Can the church say Amen. I'm, I'm just pleading with you, and, and Moses, I think, is pleading with us for, through the annals of history, through the, through the pages of Scripture. Moses is saying, are you sitting? Teach your children. Are you standing? Teach your children. Are you walking? Teach your children. Are you waking up? Teach your children. Are you going to sleep? Teach your children. And I don't have to tell you that we live in a world gone crazy. Are we together, everyone? Just this week, I was driving down over there by Salt and drove past Nathan Marshall, and uh, he said, hey, you just drove by me. And I said, swung around and went over and spent a little time with him there while he was working on one of the houses that he's building. And just out of the blue, Nathan says to me, man, the world is going crazy. Have you noticed that the world is going completely crazy? Right? It, it's just outlandish, the things that are happening in the world, whether you want to talk environmentally or economically or governmentally or this whole immigrant thing. I mean, the world is going crazy. And if somebody is not a stabilizing, anchoring, biblical force in your children's life, they're going to be swept away by the current of the, by, the, by what the Germans call the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Are you with me on this? I'm pleading with you. And this could be for some of you that have gotten a little lazy. In your own religious experience, in your own religious education, one of the stories that I've heard repeatedly about the Kingscliff Church here, the sort of... The sort of uh, uh, legend or the, the story, the history perhaps is better of the Kingscliff Church is that a number of years ago there were just some people that just started spending an hour a day with God in Scripture. 
And they had listened to some CDs from Herb Larson, and then somebody shared that with somebody who shared that with somebody and who shared that with somebody. Before you knew it, you had, you had you know, a couple dozen people in this church who said, hey, man, we're going to take this seriously. And maybe that fire has cooled a bit, and it's become 30 minutes and then 20 minutes. God's not concerned so much with the amount of time. The amount of time is simply a product of the fact that for the rest of the day, we're being saturated by ungodliness and foolishness that when we spend any amount of time with God, we're basically buttressing our soul, shielding our soul against madness. The world has gone insane. Can you say amen? Completely insane. Crazy, kooky, wild insane. So insane that we're like fish living in water. We're not even aware of how insane the world has gone. But to the degree that we are aware of it, we have to take seriously our own education, the education of our children, and to the degree that we are able, the education of our grandchildren. Amen. Woo! Okay. All right. Finally, the blessings and cursings motif. This is a major, major passage. As Moses draws his various farewell homilies to a close, beginning in chapter 27, Moses delivers a series of statements that what we just call today the blessings and the cursings. The blessings and the cursings. And At first blush, that can sound a little shady. It can sound a little like, yeah, if you do what's good, I'll bless you. And if you don't, I'll curse you. But in fact, the blessings and the cursings are more like this. God says, look, I've created the world to operate in a certain way. A sequential, Newtonian, cause and effect way. And if you behave in certain ways, this will be the result. And if you behave in these ways... This will be the result. Not that God is, we talked about this last week, not that God is actively punishing, or even in some case, not that he's actively blessing, but he has created the world to operate in a certain way, and when we operate in harmony with that, whether it's our own health, the way we raise our families, or the way that we take care of our our intellectual energies, we can be blessed or we can be cursed, depending on how we relate to the way that God has made the universe to set up. Does this make sense? We cooperate with those laws, we benefit. If we ignore those laws... We suffer. Remember, God didn't say to Adam and Eve, hey, in the day you eat of that tree, I'm going to kill you. No, he said, in the day you eat of that tree, you will die. Not, Not an external imposition on them from God, but something that was intrinsic to disobedience, something that was intrinsic to the fruit. He, he, this is not a warning of punishment. He's not like, hey, if you do that, I'll, I'll kill you. He said, hey, this is the consequence. This is a warning, not a threat. And the blessings and the cursings are not threats. God's not like, you'd better behave or else. He's saying, hey, look, the world operates like this. The universe operates like this. Love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, those are the ways that I have created the world to operate because they are the extension and the outflow of my character. And if you operate in harmony with that, you will be benefited. And if you operate out of harmony with that, you will reap the consequences. Not because I'm externally imposing something on you, but because that's the way the world works. Whether we're talking about Newtonian physics or the way... Just this week, I was reading a book that um, Ilona gave me. Great children's story, by the way, Ilona. A book called The Brain That Heals Itself. And uh, man, if, if time allowed, and I'm sure at some point I'll be able to talk in this church about the plasticity of the adult brain. But the most recent neurological research oh, in the last two decades is confirming that neuroplasticity, that is the ability to change not just your mind, but the actual physical structure of your brain is, is in your hands. The, the brain is this marvelous, amazing, plastic, malleable thing. And yes, there are genetic inheritances. And yes, there are, we can habituate ourselves to certain actions. But I just have been reading not just the chapter that you recommended, Alona, but quite a little bit of the book. And it's astonishing. Everything from the treatment of autism to schizophrenia to just bad habits is actually healable when we understand the science of the way that not just the mind operates as an immaterial entity, but the way the brain works. Can you say, man? Just awesome. God has built us to be able to make changes and to become the people that he created us to be. So whether we're talking about, you know, Newtonian physics or the way that our brain works or the way that we raise our children, as scripture says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And so when Moses gathered the children of Israel together there and he began to speak to them about the blessings and the cursings, this wasn't a giant threat. This was a, this was a pleading of admonition. Please, 
Pay attention to the way that I've made the world to operate. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you something quite fascinating. Go from Deuteronomy to what might seem like a strange book, to the book of Daniel. Go to the book of Daniel. You'll find that just beyond the center of your Bible, to the right. So go through Isaiah, go through Jeremiah, go through Ezekiel, and come to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And for the last, all oh, 15 minutes of this sermon, I need you to think with me theologically. And what I mean by that is I need you to think biblically. Because if you will, I've been sort of giving you a lot of encouragement here, a lot of exhortation, a lot of advice, biblical advice, I hope. But these last 15 minutes are more theological. And if you can follow the train of thought, the biblical train of thought, these next 15 minutes, you will be blown away by the conclusion. Okay? So hang in here for the next 15 minutes and see if it makes sense. So we're in Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel chapter 9 is many centuries after what takes place in Deuteronomy. Moses laid out for the children of Israel what would happen if they obeyed and what would happen if they disobeyed. Well, much of the history of the Old Testament is that they disobeyed and they bore not the blessings but the cursings. They bore the penalties and the downsides of operating out of harmony with the way that God had made the universe to work. And by the time we get to Daniel... Israel has been divided not just into their 12 tribes, but into the 10 that was Israel, the 2 that became Judah. The 10 have been carried away into Assyrian captivity, never to be heard from again. The 2, Judah, have now been carried away into Babylonian captivity. Their city, Jerusalem, has been sacked. Their temple has been ruined. Daniel and many of his compatriots have been carried away to Babylon. In other words, God's grand and beautiful and glorious vision for Israel has completely fallen on its face. It did not happen. The potential, the opportunity that was there has not been realized. And Daniel, as an old man at this point, many hundreds of years, centuries and centuries after Moses had said to the children of Israel, you'll be blessed, you'll be cursed. Daniel kneels down to pray. Parents are dead. Cities in ruin. Israel is, is no more. Judah is now in captivity. The wheels have come off. It's over. And Daniel kneels down to pray. And I want you to see what he says. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read just 11 verses of this prayer. Look at what he says. In the first year of Darius, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through, the, through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel's beginning to realize that that 70 years is nearly up. He'd been studying the book of Jeremiah, and he's like, man, this is the opportunity. This is the time. We need to be set free. So he says... I set my face, verse 3, toward the Lord my God to make prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession and I said. Now what follows here from verse 4 all the way almost to the end of the chapter is Daniel's heartfelt, earnest, heartbreaking prayer. And I want you to notice what he says. Oh Lord, great and awesome God, first thing out of his mouth, who keeps his covenant. First thing, you have been faithful. You have done what you said you would do. Not in one dot, not in one iota, not in one detail have you been unfaithful. Oh Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who what? What's the first word out of his mouth? With those who love him. That's what we've been talking about the whole time. Give me your heart, give me your love, give me your affection, give me your attention. Those who love him with those who keep his commandments. Now watch this. We have sinned. You have been faithful. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers and all the people of the land. Verse 17, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. You have been faithful. But to us, shame of face. As it is this day, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O oh Lord, to us belong, second time, shame of face to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him, rebelled, stiff-necked, hard-hearted. Two more verses, verse 10. 
We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed. Now watch this carefully. All Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against God. So here's Daniel, many centuries later, opening his heart, pleading before God, and he's like, God, everything that you said in Moses would happen, everything you said in Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 30, all of that stuff has happened to us. Everything to a T. The captivity happened. The idolatry happened. The rebellion happened. The hard-heartedness happened. The wars happened. The loss of our children happened. The lack of financial blessing happened. Everything you said, and you can spend a Sabbath afternoon, read Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30. He says, everything that you said happened, all of that, not as a punishment, not as an external imposition by God, actively punishing, but as the natural consequences of the choices that they had made. God said, man, you kept making decisions that eventually you forced my hand and I had to give you over to the consequences of your choices. Now, I told you to hang in there. Watch what happens now. When we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says something that is hugely remarkable about the blessings and the cursings. The climax of the fifth book of Moses, the climax of the whole Torah. Paul says something radical, something mind-blowing. It's in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ has rescued us, redeemed us, from the curse of the law. Any Jew that's reading that knows immediately what's being talked about. The cursings. Now, a lot of our evangelical friends, well-meaning Baptists and Pentecostals and Assemblies of God and beautiful people who love Jesus, they read that like this. Christ has redeemed us from the law. Of course, that's not what it says. It says Christ has rescued us from the what? From the from the curse of the law, which raises the question, how? How did he rescue Israel from its unfaithfulness? How does he rescue us from our unfaithfulness? How does he rescue us from our shame of face, from our rebelliousness, from our stiff neck? How? He says, Christ has rescued us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21. As it is written, Deuteronomy chapter 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And I'll just give you a brief history on that. There were particular sins that were so disgusting, so egregious, and so repugnant to God that God said, if a man commits that sin, if a woman commits that sin, don't give them a nice and proper burial. When they have died, hang them in a tree. In the same way that sometimes the police forces will take a car that's been seriously smashed in an accident and they'll put it out at a major location so that you see, ooh, I'm going to drive a little more careful. I'm going to drive a little slower. I'm going to pay a little more attention. He says, take somebody, take somebody who's committed an abominable sin, a cursed sin, a terrible sin, and hang them on a tree so that everybody can see that cursed thing. And Paul says, Jesus redeemed us from the curse. Well, how? He became the curse. And he hung on a tree. Why? That the blessing of, what's that name right there? that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. That's us. In Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now watch how theologian N.T. Wright articulates this. Follow this. When you ask most people, hey, why did the Messiah become a curse for us? You ask, you know, you ask a, a Christian person, a reasonably intelligent, well-educated person, hey, why did Jesus become a curse for us? He says, the normal answer would be something like this, so that we might be free from sin and we might share fellowship with God in all eternity. Probably many of you would give an answer very similar to that. Why did Jesus become a curse for us? Oh, so that we could be saved and live forever with God. That is not Paul's answer. That's a consequence of Paul's answer, but that's not his answer. Paul's answer is totally different, radically different. Why, Paul, then, did the Messiah become a curse for us? 
He says, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What? Jesus becomes a curse so that the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis could become fulfilled, that it could reach its maturation. What then is the problem to which the cursed bearing death of the Messiah is the answer? If Jesus is the answer, what was the question? If Jesus bearing the curse on Golgotha's tree, if that's the, if that's the answer, what was the question? That's what he's saying. Well, here's the problem. The problem is that the law looked as if it would prevent the Abrahamic promises from getting out to the nations. That was, the, that was the plan all along, remember? Abraham in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But what happens if the descendants of Abraham don't keep covenant and they break covenant with God? The concern that Paul has and the concern that Moses has is the nations will perish because who will give them a knowledge of the one true God? You see, friends, the Sabbath wasn't just given to Israel. It was given through Israel. The sanctuary wasn't just given to Israel. It was given through Israel. The truth wasn't just given to Israel, it was given through Israel. But what happens if the mechanism through which the truth and the sanctuary and the Sabbath and the goodness of God, what happens if that mechanism fails? Well, then the nations, those that would receive that beautiful message, they don't get the benefit. This is what he says. The problem is that it looked as if the, that this law would prevent, the non-keeping of the law would prevent the Abrahamic promises from getting out to the nations. And to make this point... He draws out the great covenant passage in Deuteronomy 27 to 30, the same one that Daniel quoted. Paul sees the entire history of Israel since Moses as the outworking of these great promises and warnings, not threats, warnings. In particular, he understands the long period since the geographical exile as the continuation of the period of the curse. If Israel were to stay under the curse forever as it ap appeared inevitable... Granted that nobody in Israel did in fact abide by everything written in the Torah. Well, okay, then what? Then the promises would never be released to the wider world. The concern wasn't just the salvation of Israel any more than our primary concern in this building should be our own salvation. You're the church. We're the conduit through which the message goes to the world. All of this navel-gazing and inward-looking and introspection about our own spiritual condition has a place. But that's not the primary reason that God called the church. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to take the gospel to the wider world. Israel itself could never be renewed, and here it is. But then comes the punchline. How will this seeming insurmountable, insuperable obstacle be overcome? The Messiah became a curse for us by hanging on the tree and coming himself to the place of the curse as indicated by Deuteronomy and thereby making a way through the curse and out the other side. Can the church say amen? Thank you. There is some enthusiasm here. They might be under eight and they don't understand a word of what I'm saying, but at least they're enthusiastic. Beloved, I want, you to, I want you to feel the weight of this. Jesus bore the covenantal curse. Jesus bore the covenantal unfaithfulness. He bore our rebellion. He bore our stiff-neckedness. He bore all of that. And the remarkable thing is, as Daniel was like, Lord, you are faithful. You are awesome. You are good. We have rebelled. We have sinned. We have fallen. And, and Moses, his life was coming to an end. His life was coming to an end. Jesus not only enables the covenant blessings, he bore the covenant curse. See, that's the key. You see, friends, Moses was coming to the end of his life. Some of you in this room are coming toward the end of your life. Okay, now let me sort of explain to you what I mean by that. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, God actually asks Moses, Moses actually asks God to change his mind. He says, hey, God, uh, that whole thing about me not going into the promised land, can you change your mind on that? And God says, no. Moses was, as the Aussies would say, devil. Devastated. Moses is devastated. I mean, here he's been wandering with these stiff-necked, 
obnoxious, obstinate people for the better part of 40 years and he makes one seemingly insignificant mistake and he wants to go into the promised land and God says, you're not going to go to the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb will go in. They will be the only adults that came out of Egypt. And then God, Moses in, Genesis, uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, he says, God, please change your mind. I want to go in. And God says, no, I'm sorry. Now, I read this just this week, and I about fell out of my chair when I read this line from Patriarchs and Prophets. This is Moses. This is amazing, awesome, grand, saintly, in, you know, uh, 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 insuperable Moses. Without a murmur, Moses submitted to the decree of God. God says, no, I'm not changing my mind. And Moses manned up, and he took it. And now his great anxiety was for Israel. And that's why he gathered them together. This is the context of the whole book of Deuteronomy. He gathered them together and he pled with them, teach your children, teach your grandchildren, soften your heart, don't have stiff neck. He just, he just, this, is just the, this is the pastoral heart of Moses on full display. He knows he's going to die you know, within days or perhaps some of those discourses within hours. God, please change your mind. Nope. And now his great anxiety was for Israel. Now look at this. As Moses reviewed the result of his labors, his life of trial and sacrifice seemed to have been almost in vain. I almost fell out of my chair. I thought to myself, you mean, you mean Moses? Moses. Moses came to the end of his life and he thought, I've wasted my life. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel. But if Moses wasted his life, what are we doing with ours? The greatest leader in all of history. Right? Ellen White says one of the greatest philosophers, one of the gra- I mean, the, 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 the influence that Moses and his writings and his leadership have had on the history of the human race is inestimable. And Moses, when he came to the end of his life, 120 years, he looked back, he surveyed his life, and he thought, man, I've wasted my life. It's been in vain. And then he climbed to the top of this mountain right here, Mount Nebo. And God didn't just show him the promised land. He showed him the future. You know that he showed him the future because when you read the blessings and the cursings, the things that he says came to pass. He saw the future. He saw perhaps even Daniel on his knees, and he certainly saw Christ and him crucified. Moses, Moses, God showed it all to him. Not only did he see the valleys and the hills and the oases and the timbers and the trees, he, he saw it. And he saw the future. And as he prepared to die, he thought about his life, and his life could be divided into into three sets of 40. The first 40 years, he was basically in Pharaoh's house. The second 40 years, he was wandering around the desert chasing sheep. And the last 40 40 years of his life, he was wandering around the desert chasing rebellious people. And he thought, my life has been a waste. Fascinatingly, psychologists identify these three basic phases of a human life. Early age, middle age, and the later years. And you're not going to live as long as Moses, but your life probably looks something like this. The first 25 years, and then 26 to 50, the middle age, and then, I'm sorry, after 50, you got a date with destiny, man. You're in, the, you're in the twilight years of your life, ladies. Right? If you're at year 50, 60, it's, you know, unless you're Agnes and you're going to live forever, you're 98 and still going strong. But for most of us, it's just... Some of you might get this. You know, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. You take good care of yourself. You eat well. You might get this. You might get 30, 30, and 90. Good for you. But Moses looked back, and he saw those first 40 years. He said, man, I just spent my time in Pharaoh's house. I blew it. And then he, he, thought, he said, man, what about those next 40 years? What a waste. I was a shepherd. What did I do? I have nothing to show for it. I wandered around the hills chasing sheep. What a waste. And then those last 40 years, here he is. He doesn't even get to go in. And God shows him the future. And all of these people that he's been caring for and taking care of and judging and ministering to, he sees the future and the whole thing, the wheels are going to come off and collapse. And he's just like, My, listen, it's in vain. And I want to tell you today, you might feel a little bit that way. I, I feel that way at times. I look back and I think, man, I could have done so much more. If Moses is allowed to have a midlife crisis late in his life, then you are too. Life's success is God's business, not yours. And a remarkable thing happens. Moses dies on Mount Nebo. But he died and was resurrected very shortly thereafter. There's this 
teeny little verse tucked away in the New Testament book of Jude that says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. This, this little hint that Moses was not allowed to be eaten by vultures or ravens or torn apart by jackals. That Moses, perhaps a few days later, not more than a few weeks, or perhaps only a few hours later, was resurrected and taken to be with God. And here's the remarkable thing. He was the first to ever be resurrected. Throughout eternity, Moses will bear the unique honor and distinction of being the first recipient of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just this week, this, this man died. His name is Bill Carlson Perguson. You can go read the article on my Facebook page. 48 years old. It says, Adventist evangelist, 48, killed in U.S. plane crash. He was like me. He was a preacher. Two young kids, 13 and 16, like me. Beautiful wife, like me. Dead. He died. Moses died. And one day you're going to die. But your success or your failure is not to be ultimately determined by you, but by God. God has a bigger plan and a bigger vision and a bigger strategy for your life. I want to close with this story. Just this week, I rewatched what some call the greatest chess match in the history of the game of chess, and that's a game that's been around for, for the better part of 2,000 years. This young man is Bobby Fischer. He's 13 years old in this picture. He's considered by many to be the greatest chess mind in the history of chess. On October 17th, in 1956, he played a man by the name of Donald Byrne in what some consider to be the greatest chess match in the history of the world and in which the single greatest chess move happened. He was a 13-year-old boy that was considered to be a chess prodigy. He had beaten some very capable players, and here at this particular tournament, he came up against a man who was a grand champion. Grand champion at the prime of his career in his, in his early uh, 50s. And as the match begins to unfold, it's, it's fairly even, but Bobby Fischer seems to be developing his pieces just a little better. It's like he has a bigger vision for the game. He sees what Donald Byrne, even with all of his gifts, just can't quite see. And then it comes to the 17th move out of 38 in the whole game. And Bobby Fischer commits what everybody looking on thought was a blunder. He moves his queen into a position where it can be taken without recapturing by Burns Bishop. He, he dangles his queen out there. People think, oh, he was going so well. And Byrne takes the queen and then ends up over the course of the next 21 moves losing the game. It's called the sacrifice, the, the greatest sacrifice in the history of chess, the greatest single move ever made. And here's the point. Even at that young age of 13, playing against a man that was his senior, not only in years, but in experience, Bobby Fischer saw the whole game from the 17th move to the 38th move. He saw the whole thing, and he saw that if he sacrificed that queen, that that, that would be an irresistible take for Byrne, and he would take that, and the pieces would align in such a way he could see the whole few. Byrne could see the next few moves. Fisher could see the whole game. And when Jesus went to Golgotha's tree, Satan thought, I've got him. How, how easy is this? How simple is this? I'll just take him. Except that Satan could only see the next few moves. But God could see the rest of the game. And that seeming blunder, a dead Messiah stuck on a tree, a Roman instrument of torture, the whole thing coming to naught, that seeming blunder actually became the means by which God rescued us from the curse of the law of Moses. I want to tell you today, the devil's check has always been death. Puts us in check, puts us in check, puts us in check. We're thinking about death, thinking about failure, thinking about success. And, and here's the punchline. Until Christ died, he rose again, 
He redeemed us from the curse, and he put the devil in checkmate. Friends, I want to tell you today, God has a plan for your life. You might die, but Jesus has redeemed us from both death and the curse of the law. And you will be resurrected. I don't know what number you'll be. You won't be number one. Moses has that distinction. But you will be resurrected if you die. And if you never die, if you live to be one of those that are translated without seeing death, it will all be because Jesus became a curse for us. Moses saw not only the land, he saw the heavenly Canaan, the heavenly land. He saw Christ redeeming rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn people from the curse of the law. He saw us. Can you say amen? Father in heaven, you have redeemed us in Christ from the curse of the law just when Satan thought he had made that perfect and final move by capturing the strongest piece on the board, by taking Jesus and nailing him to a Roman instrument of torture, in that very move which he could not resist, he couldn't resist the opportunity to torture Jesus, to put him on a tree and to mock him and see him bruised and beating. Father, in that moment when he flexed seemingly his insurmountable strength, he was at his weakest, and you were at your strongest. You showed us that love will conquer, that love will win, and that death and sin and the curse will be defeated. And Father, today we stand as recipients and as beneficiaries, not only of the ministry of Abraham and the life of Abraham, not only of the ministry of Moses and the life of Moses, but especially as the beneficiaries of the ministry and the life of the one that Moses and Abraham looked to, Jesus Christ. Father, the prayer for my church and for my family is that we will not be a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn, rebellious people, but we will be a soft-hearted, generous, pliable, loving people who know that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law and who know for certain that one day should we breathe our last, we will be resurrected just as Moses was. We love you, Father, and we thank you for having brought us through this glance at the blessings and the cursings and seeing that the distance between the Old Testament and the New Testament and 2015 is not so great indeed, but in fact, they are very, very close. And Father, today we put our faith in Jesus and we are thankful for the ministry and the life and the faithfulness of Moses and of the one that he saw, Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, Father, and we love you. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath.